Father God, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We pray that he now would open our eyes, unblock our ears, soften our hearts, so that we see and hear what you're saying to us, so that we're moved to trust you and obey you in our lives and look to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, what would success in life look like for you? Pretty much every human being will have some kind of answer to that question. For some, it might feel like a distant, unachievable aspiration. Uh, for others, it might even feel like it's already happened. Does success mean achieving career goals, establishing a family, seeing them happy and healthy, having enough in the pension pot for a comfortable, carefree retirement? <clears throat> if you're younger, maybe it's more short-term. It's securing the place at university, getting the first job, meeting the right person. And of course, for some, even many in this world, it will be a lot simpler than that, won't it? Finding enough food to feed family, finding employment, any employment at all, living in peace, free from war and conflict, personal or global. Well, in the reading we heard from Acts, we get a, wi a window into what these first apostles, these early Christians, what they thought success was. And when we compare it to our own ambitions and hopes and desires, great or small, it turns them all completely upside down. It's completely subversive. Verse 41 is where we see. If you look at that, right at the end of the reading on the next page, verse 41, the apostles have uh, been in prison. They've been miraculously let out, of, let out of prison. They've preached and they found themselves in front of a religious council where they've preached again. They've ended up being flogged. The standard flogging in those times was 40 lashes minus one. 40 lashes was considered enough to kill someone. So if your aim was not to kill but just to punish, you did 39. So 39 lashes, 40 minus one, horrendously painful, humiliating. What is their response to all that they've gone through? Verse 41, have a look at that. The apostles left the Sanhedrin after all these things that happened to them, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What is success? Being counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, which of course, as we've seen through many times through these previous chapters over these last few weeks, the name is Jesus. So think of those standard questions you often get asked, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? What are your career goals, your ambitions? What's the dream? Their answer? Suffering disgrace for Jesus. Now, whether you trust in Jesus for yourself this morning or not, I think this will raise questions for us. How on earth can people say this? What can they possibly mean? Well, we're going to think about that and how they could possibly arrive at that conclusion. As we do that, it's helpful to remind ourselves briefly what's been happening in these chapters in the book of Acts that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Chapters 3 to 6 in particular kind of hang together. The same sort of events happen. And there's a sort of, uh, it's sort of happened repeatedly. There's a kind of cycle, a spiral. Preaching happens. They get arrested. 
Their response is boldness and more preaching. And things kind of get intensified through that cycle that we see through these chapters. As they preach and heal more and more, opposition grows, and uh, so does their boldness. And the people of God continue to grow in number. And so from the start, what we're seeing through these chapters is that suffering goes hand in hand with growth. And all the way through, what we're seeing is that those who oppose God's people, they think they've got the upper hand, they think that they're in charge, but again and again what we see is that, no, actually God is in charge. That's what we're seeing in these chapters. The plan that uh, Jesus outlined right at the start of the book, chapter 1, verse 8, is for the gospel, the good news about him, to reach the ends of the earth. What we're seeing in these chapters is that plan can't be stopped. We're still in Jerusalem at this point. The gospel's going to go to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. If you try and oppose God and his plan, it's going to lead only to humiliation. And that is what we see in these verses now, which are all about subversion. Subversion. God is subverting the rulers who think they're boss with a subversive message delivered by subversive messengers. What does subvert mean? It means to turn upside down. We're going to understand how the apostles could possibly think that to succeed is to suffer disgrace. We're going to need to understand how everything about what God is doing through his people is subversive. It's turning everything upside down, changing all our expectations, challenging the way we see the world. That is what's going on here. So we're going to pull out those themes of subversion in these verses. So here we go. First of all, you can see on the back of the notice sheet as well, and on the screen, subversive God, rulers over rules. And we're pulling out, so we're looking at, pulling out the, the, the different verses which show this, verses 17 to 28 and then 33 to 40. Subversive God, rulers Overruled. We're told that what motivates the high priest and their associates, verse 17, is jealousy. They arrested the apostles and they put them in jail. And then we're told without further explanation, in the night, an angel of the Lord opened the door and let them out. And there are, there are three accounts of this kind of miraculous deliverance from prison in Acts. It happens three times in different places, but not everyone always gets delivered from every problem that they're in. It's worth noting that. We'll see it just in a couple of chapters' time. Stephen becomes the first martyr. He isn't rescued from that situation. So this isn't a kind of promise that, you know, if you're in prison, God's going to open the door for you. It's not a promise, but on this occasion, that is what happened. We don't know whether quite how it happened and what, what it meant, but it did. That's what we're told. And so they're sent straight back to where they had been meeting and preaching before in the temple courts. And uh, back they go. Meanwhile, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, arrive also in the temple courts. They send for the apostles. They find the prison cell empty, with the doors locked and still guarded. And that makes them stop and think. Verse 24, you know, what does this mean? But then they hear the apostles are back in the temple, and so they drag them in, and driven by that jealousy, they forget that weird bit about how they got out of prison, and they focus on the fact that the apostles have not listened to that warning that they were given previously not to preach in this name, the name that they won't even say, the name of Jesus. 
Now, what does this persistence of the ruling council show at this point as they insist on interrogating the apostles? Is it strength and courage as they do this? Well, it's very possible to persist in entirely the wrong things, isn't it? Their persistence here simply underlines their weakness, their stupidity. They should have been asking, how did these men get out of prison? And even more than that, why then, when they got out of prison, why didn't they just flee the city and and go and hide in the countryside rather than return to the temple and carry on preaching? What is going on? Maybe there's something else going on, it might make them think. But they're jealous and that's all they can see. They can't see God overruling them, subverting them. Now we'll come to the apostles' response in a bit. But let's note also the speech by Gamaliel in verses 33 to 40. So a bit further on in the reading, we heard he, he stands up and addresses the, um, uh, the, the council. And uh, like others in the Bible, uh, this happens sometimes, he speaks truer than he knows. So he says, remember, there have been other rebellions, and they came to nothing. You know, Thudas and Judas, he points to. So verse 38 Therefore, leave them alone and let them go, because if their purpose or activity is of human origin, then it will fail, like all the other hundreds or thousands of rebellions. And we know this historically. We know there were lots of people, lots of kind of revolutionary characters, like Thudas and Judas. And so they're kind of saying, well, if this Jesus guy that they're going on about is just another one of those, well, they, they just, we'll never hear from them again. It will die out. But if it's from God, he says... You will not be able to stop them. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, of course, he's right, isn't he? But in a way, he doesn't understand, and in fact could never understand in his lifetime in one sense, because his intention by saying this is to find a way to sit on the fence. He's kind of putting off having to make a decision one way or the other. You know, but the evidence is in front of him. Why would these people who claim to be eyewitnesses suffer in this way for a lie? That's the big question you've got to ask about these apostles, isn't it? As they go around preaching that Jesus has died and risen from the dead and they're put in prison and they're threatened and their lives are, are on the line. Why would they do that if it's not true? That's the question that they should have been asking then in front of them. That's the question we can ask today as well as we consider the evidence. But for us reading this later as well, actually this speaks to us because it's saying every year that passes is another year in which the worldwide Christian church has not shrunk but grown. You know, we can feel downhearted about how things are going for the church in the UK or uh, for the West in general, but look globally and what you find is growth. The fastest increase in Christians in the world over the last 20 years is in Iran, of all places. Can you believe it? From maybe five or 10,000 20 years ago to nearly a million today, meeting in secret, meeting undercover and, and, and all the rest of it. In fact, if you're looking for evidence that Christianity is true, its success and its growth and its inability to die over the last 2,000 years is just one more piece of the jigsaw one more bit of evidence for us to notice on top of the eyewitness accounts the fulfillment of old testament scripture the work of the holy spirit the things that luke points us to in these chapters in acts 
See, Gamaliel is right, isn't he? Few people today have heard of Judas and Thudas and the details of their rebellions and what they got up to. Billions of people have heard of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll think a bit more about why this subversive message will not die in a moment. But for now, what we're seeing is a warning. See, Luke is showing us. If you set yourself up against God and against his people, you're going to fail. You're going to be humiliated in the process. Because God is in charge. His plan is not going to stop. It's not going to fail. And so, if you think back to that question, how can they rejoice in suffering as they finish this chapter doing How can they do that? How can they think that's success? Well, it starts with realising God is in charge. He always wins. His plan is going to work. If you're trusting him, you're on the right side. It's it's trusting and and realising that behind the universe isn't kind of blind, pitiless indifference, which is Richard Dawkins' phrase for what he thinks uh, is all we can say about the universe. It's not randomness and chaos. Behind all that we experience in our lives, in this world, is a God who is ensuring that his plan for billions to trust in his son and find life, he's ensuring that that plan succeeds. And so he overrules rulers. He subverts But there is more subversion here then. Secondly, there is the subversive message, a rejected saviour. So this is their response. The apostles, what they say back to the rule, to these, when they're questioned by the Sanhedrin, what do they do? Verse 29, verse 30. Um, One thing we see clearly in these early chapters is that wherever the apostles go, they preach the same message. And here they're explaining why their first loyalty must be to God. Verse 29, we must obey God rather than human beings. Because verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. The the, the Jesus, the one that you killed by hanging him on a cross. And on the face of it, this is a crazy strategy. You know, their PR advisors, what would they be saying? Saying, guys, maybe tone it down a bit. I mean, you know, why do you have to go on about sin? Why do you have to go on about the specific sin of these people standing in front of you that that they put Jesus to death, you're saying to them? Can't you see that this message isn't going to go down very well? At least just say something more generic and acceptable, like how we all just need to love one another. You know, we can feel the same pressure today, can't we, when we're sharing the Christian message. But actually, they're not just being stupidly provocative. Because as much as they emphasise sin and rebellion against God by killing his son, they also, in the same breath, they emphasise the forgiveness that is available. That's what they're doing. When they talk about Jesus hanging on a cross, every Jewish listener would have known that to die on a cross was to die under a curse. So here's uh, on the screen a verse from Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 23. You can see in the middle there, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You know, if you expose someone like that, you hang them up for full view to die. That is a sign of being under God's curse. 
And so by drawing attention to that, they're, they're making us think, think, think of this question. What is this Jesus who they preach and proclaim with such boldness? They don't see this as an embarrassment. They see this as something that people need to hear about. Why is this Jesus, why did he die under a curse? Because, verse 31, he is prince and saviour who's been exalted to God's right hand to bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of sins. His death is not a death for his own sins. It's a death for the sins of his people. He bears a curse, not for himself, but for them. That is their gospel message. And you can see it again and again. They just keep saying the same thing. Sometimes we, Luke reports it in a more condensed way, but you keep seeing. This is what they say wherever they go. You have sinned, but Jesus died for you. So you can turn from sin and you can be forgiven. This is a subversive message because it celebrates a rejected, a cursed, a crucified saviour. It's not the message that we expect to hear. And actually, that, that, that's still the same today. I've taken a lot of school assemblies over the years uh, in ministry as a visitor into various schools. And there's this phenomenon I've noticed you get quite often which is the head teacher's epilogue to what you say. So I don't really do school assemblies here in Hampstead, so I'm not really commenting on the local ones. David and Corin do, do those assemblies. But in other schools that I've visited in the past, you know, I found you stand up and say, there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. We've all turned our backs on him. You just need to turn and to him and be forgiven. That is our only hope. Words to that effect, maybe with a few... Uh, you know, illustrations. The head teacher stands up afterwards and says, thank you, Tom. Thank you for coming and reminding us how we all just need to try a little bit harder to be nice to each other and not to fight in the playground. That's the head teacher's epilogue. You think, That's, that isn't what I said. Did you not, were you not listening? That isn't what I said. But this message, you see, is subversive. It's not the one we're expecting. It's not what we expect to hear. And if we're not really listening, we won't hear it. And we'll get stuck as well on that sin point. This is what happens so often. We, you know, isn't it better not to go on about that, we think? Isn't, it, isn't that just really negative? Why do we have to emphasise that? Why can't we focus on the positives and affirm the good things about ourselves instead? But sin is like that terrible diagnosis that the doctors need to share with us. Why do they need to do that? They need to do that in order that we can find the right treatment. Would we rather they just ignored it and said, everything's fine when it isn't? No, we want to know, particularly if there is a treatment for whatever the terrible disease is. And it's the same with sin, you see. We're not just saying, look, hard, dreadful sinners, nothing you can do. No, we're sinners and there's a saviour. That is the gospel message. The apostles preach this subversive message because this is the only message that saves. And that is why this subversive message will not die. That is why it passes the Gamaliel test 2,000 years later. It is still going. The people are still telling each other this news because it's a message that brings real hope in the face of the greatest sin and the greatest suffering in the face of death itself. 
Now, you might say, well, hang on a minute. Christianity is not the only faith, as it were, in the world, not the only religion that's kind of succeeded and spread. Actually, look, look at what happens in, in, with other religions. They are so often spread by the sword. You know, convert or we kill you. Christianity is the opposite, isn't it? Jesus was killed for you. It's not convert or be killed. It's convert and find life. And that subversive message then finally creates subversive messengers rejoicing in suffering. So verse 29, first of all. What do they say? We must obey God rather than human beings. We must obey God rather than human beings. Isn't that crazy talk? Doesn't it put them on a road to certain suffering? Well, the result is they are flogged, and their response is where we started. They judge success to be suffering for the name of Jesus, verse 41. And so they think, today, today was a good day, and we rejoice, they say. Now, it's worth just saying in passing that, that during the pandemic, some people have homed in on verse 29, we must obey God rather than human beings, as a principle for how churches ought to operate, you know, when, for example, the government tells them to close in the face of a public health crisis. And it's just worth saying that, that kind of doing that temporarily as part of a widespread response across the whole of society that affects everyone from supermarkets to nightclubs is really rather different from a church in North Korea or China or Iran being targeted and shut down by the authorities. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. Maybe that will happen in the UK at some point. That in some way, you know, churches will be picked on. And maybe there are other ways in which we can see that already happening. And we need to be alert to that. But, you know, our reading of the situation at St John's, along with many other churches, has been that that isn't what's been happening during COVID. It's a slightly different issue. I think it's just worth saying that because this is one of the places people would go to to say, ha, you know, you need to, to look at this. But actually, that's a bit of a distraction. Let's not miss the deeper and more important point to see here, which is this view of success that sees suffering disgrace for the sake of Jesus as a reason to rejoice. There's a similarly subversive way that is a helpful way to think about lots of things in the Christian life. So think about this. You know, people, people ask, do you have to go to church if you're a Christian? Do you, have to, do you have to go to church? There may be people asking you that at work if you sort of tell them that you're Christian. Well, does that mean you have to go to church like every Sunday? Do, do you have to pray? And the slightly subversive Christian response is, no, no, I don't have to do that. I, I get to do that. Isn't that right? I get to go to church. I get to go and be with my brothers and sisters and hear about Jesus. That's what, I mean, he's my saviour. Of course I want to do that. I get to pray. I have this access to God as my heavenly father. That I can pray in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit through his son Jesus. He listens to me anytime I speak to him about anything. He's listening. I get to do that. Isn't that an amazing privilege? In chapter 4 we saw that when the apostles responded uh, they're challenged back there similar to what's happening here about what they're doing and they say then we cannot help speaking of what we have seen and heard can't help it you know they're not saying you know well 
The thing is, you know, people asking me, the thing is, I'm a Christian, so that means I must do evangelism, and it's a bit of a drag, and it's a bit of a burden, frankly, but I, I feel quite guilty about it, uh, especially when I don't do it. So from time to time, I kind of give it a go, uh, and then most of the time I keep my mouth shut. That's not what they're saying, is it? They're saying something different. They're saying, I can't help it. This, is, this news is so amazing, I cannot help it. It just flows out of me because I understand what Jesus has done for me and what it means. I'm so gripped by it. So can you see, we, with that, that's a sort of helpfully subversive way to think about you know, church, prayer, speaking about Jesus. But this is then taking it to a kind of next level, what they're doing here in verse 41, isn't it? And it's deeply challenging because I think many Christians, you know, we'd be comfortable with thinking positively about church and prayer and, and reading the Bible and you know, even sharing our faith with people up to a point. You know, we think that's fine in, in many circumstances. But this is, this is going... This, this is going further. It's saying even suffering for Jesus is in that category. That you get to do it, not just that you have to. You know, not just that it's a bit of small print in the Christian life. You know, as if it's saying, well, you know, there's loads of good things about being a Christian, but, you know, by the way, I'm afraid you just have to put up with a bit of suffering on the way. Is that all right? You know, but there's loads of good things, so let's just focus on those. But, you know, there is a little bit of suffering. If you just read the small print, it is printed there. If you, if you do read onto the third page kind of thing. You know, it's like saying, like, you know, over there is paradise on that hill, but in between you've got to walk over this massive, smelly rubbish dump. You know, don't worry, it will soon be over. You know, but, um, you know, sorry about the smell until then, but just, you know, keep looking to the end, and, you know, suffering as the small print, as it were. But the apostles aren't saying that. They're saying not that they have to suffer, but that they get to suffer like Jesus did, and that that is a privilege, and that that is success. Now, Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter 3, and that's why we had that as a second reading. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, he says, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So for Paul and for the apostles here, because Paul's not yet on the scene, to know Christ is to know both the power of the resurrection, the hope and joy of eternal life, but also to know Christ is to share in his sufferings, to suffer as he suffers. Because that is the shape of success in this subversive kingdom of God that Jesus brought. So it's saying, what is success? Success is giving yourself up for others. That is what Jesus did for us. And that, therefore, is what following his, in his steps and living in his kingdom looks like. Now, you can only do that if you believe, first of all, God is in control, that he overrules rulers, that he's sovereign over the circumstances of our lives that we deal with day to day when difficult things arise when we suffer for whatever reason to know we have a heavenly father who's in charge who's overruling who's making sure his plan comes about his plan to make his people more like jesus to be ready for eternity he's using even even the, the deepest pain he works through that he overrules rulers you can only believe 
that success in the kingdom has this shape of sharing in Jesus' sufferings if you believe that God's in control. And then you can only believe it, secondly, that if you believe that this subversive gospel message about a rejected saviour is true. So think of Christians in Ukraine, as we were, we were thinking about and we were praying about earlier. Think of Christians in Ukraine. Can they meet on a Sunday morning now? Well, let's pray that they are able to in, in, in different places and in different ways, even now. But you, you can't rejoice in Christ and trust him in those circumstances when you're not even sure what tomorrow will bring. You can't trust in him without a deep conviction that he's in control whatever happens, even if the worst happens. And that the gospel means there is hope in the face of death that no one and nothing can take away from you. <clears throat> now maybe we think this all sounds a bit extreme. It's worth saying, the point is not that we go looking for suffering, you know, needlessly making life difficult for ourselves, but it's simply this, actually. If we live faithfully trusting in Jesus, suffering is going to find us. Because that is what it means to be in his kingdom. That is what success looks like. We're going to be successfully faithful, such that we cannot help speaking of what we've seen and heard like we saw the apostles say, well, actually, suffering will find us. And, and suffering will find us increasingly in a world with whom Christians are more and more out of step. So it's not so much that we have to kind of go out and look for it. it it's going to come. And the question is, will we think of that as failure and as something dreadful and to be avoided at all costs? Or will we realise, actually, no, this is a privilege because this is the kind of saviour that we have. And he's counted us worthy to suffer disgrace for his name. Could it, therefore, be time for us to reframe our ambitions and our hopes and our desires for ourselves, however much time left we have to follow Jesus on this earth? Our ambitions and hopes and desires for our children, for our loved ones. You know, we so, we so easily buy into a view of success that really is just a Christianized version of Western culture's obsession with comfort and health in the here and now. All of us do, don't we, in different ways. The thing is, history tells us that once a civilization loses sight of any reason to exist other than for its own comfort and prosperity, with nothing else to live for and especially nothing else to die for, then it begins to crumble. And maybe that's what we're seeing around us now. Are we just going to settle for that vision of life that says as long as we're comfortable we've succeeded? Or are we willing and able to follow the way of Jesus that says the greatest privilege and success is to suffer disgrace like he did because that's the only way to life that lasts? Let's pray now.
Father God, as we reflect on how you're speaking to us through these verses, help us as a church. Help us to make Jesus the centre of what we're living for, the one who shapes our hopes and dreams and desires, such that even when that makes life difficult, even when we suffer because of that, we are able to rejoice. because we've got Jesus. If we're not yet trusting in Jesus, if we've not yet accepted him as Lord and Saviour, please help us to do that. Help us to see that next to him nothing else compares. If we're trusting in him, help us to assess our own deepest desires and ambitions. Help us to take them to the foot of the cross and to gaze on our crucified Saviour, rejected, cursed for us so that we might long to share both in the power of the resurrection and also the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.